Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, I'll be discussing one of the most pressing issues in the economy, and especially for young professionals. That is student loans. If you think about it, most kids graduate college around 21, 22 years old, don't have a lot of real world experience yet, especially in regards to financial planning. They've just been students up to that point in their lives. And so then all of a sudden they graduate and they get their first introduction to a real financial obligation in student loans. And for many, this could be a debt of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars that begin to be owed upon graduation, often before they've landed their first job. So it's certainly an obstacle for many, and it's having far-reaching impact to both the government, politics, and economics as a whole. So in today's episode, I'm going to dive into the micro and the macro. What should young professionals be thinking about? What are their options as far as paying back these student loans? And ultimately, what's it mean for the educational system in our economy as we deal with what many consider a pandemic right now of student loans, or an epidemic is perhaps a more accurate term. So to set the stage, we're going to rewind the clock to March 13th of 2020. I know that could seem like a lifetime ago. Certainly a lot has happened since now and then. Uh, but on March 13th of 2020, the U.S. Department of Education paused all federal student loan repayments and set the interest rate at 0% as a part of a temporary emergency measure in their COVID-19 relief program. Now, one of the key words there I just mentioned was temporary, okay? Many people equate COVID to that terrible year of 2020. Yet here we are in October of 2023, and we're just getting back to student loan repayments. So well, what's going on? I mean, why now? Why is now the magic time to say, okay, everybody owe the U.S. government their money back? Well, just to give some context, there's roughly $1.6 trillion of federal student loans outstanding. And that gigantic balance is spread across 43 million borrowers. So in short, the government's been missing out on a lot of IOUs over the past three and a half years. And as far as why is now the perfect time to begin repayments? Well, think about what the economy is dealing with. We've just gotten through record inflation the likes of which we haven't seen in over 40 years. National debt is just getting out of control, over $30 trillion owed by the U.S. federal government, right around $32 trillion to be exact. And all of this is amid a very tight labor market, which is a good thing. That means that unemployment's very low, all right? People can find jobs if they're not already employed. And so young professionals should find some encouragement out of that, that there are employers galore out there begging for qualified candidates to come to work. So with all of that said, it was time for the U.S. government to ask for their money back. And hence, the 0% interest rate uh, pause ended on September 1st, 2023. That was just last month. And the repayments started this month, October of 2023. Now, before we dive into all of the, the ins and outs of student loans and what you need to know, I would just like to remind everybody to please leave us a review wherever you're listening or watching today and go tell a friend. And that's how we're able to spread more and more financial knowledge, which helps everybody. 
And in that same vein, I'd like to remind you to check out my new book, What Should I Do With My Money? The second chapter in that book is dedicated to education. And I talk a lot about how we got to where we are right now, from the student loan epidemic to higher learning as a whole, and what it means to our economy. So definitely get in the know, go check out my book, What Should I Do With My Money? Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Cadena Podcast. All right, we're back. And first, we're going to discuss how exactly you repay student loans and what's that actually going to cost for most folks out there. So when you boil it all down, there's effectively three options you have to repay your student loans. There's the 10-year standard repayment. That's just as it says, you repay that student loan balance in 10 years. Then there's income-driven repayments. And then there's refinance options, which means that we'll take it away from the federal government, refinance it with a private lender, and then go pay that bank or whoever that lender might be. So in regards to that last one, uh, refinancing options, according to bankrate.com, Interest rates on federal student loans dispersed over the past decade range from 2.75% to 7.9% versus current refinance rates spanning from 4.96% to 11.18% among the most popular lenders out there. So with the Fed having just raised interest rates very quickly over the past year and a half, and with them talking about leaving rates higher for longer to really beat down the inflation that we've dealt with, what that means is that refinance options have become less attractive. There's not that many places for borrowers to turn and say, I wanna get a lower rate than what I'm dealing with right now. So that brings us back to, okay, if we're gonna deal directly with the government, and at least for the time being, we don't have a lot of alternatives, then the borrower can say, all right, I'll do a 10-year standard repayment, or let's go look at those income-driven repayment options. So let's focus on the latter because that's what so many young professionals that are trying to get their ducks in a row and try and get on solid footing as they really begin their adult lives and then contend with sometimes this huge student loan balance, they're going to say, all right, to fit it all in this limited budget that I have, income-driven repayments are the way to go. There are four options within Income Driven Repayment, or IDR, as it's known. And there's more acronyms that I'm going to introduce to you now. The first one up is PAY, or Pay As You Earn, P-A-Y-E. So the way that the Pay As You Earn repayment is calculated is it's generally 10% of your discretionary income, which I'm going to define in a moment, but that payment can never exceed what it would otherwise be on the standard 10-year repayment, okay? Next, we have the SAVE repayment, which stands for Save on a Valuable Education. This is a brand new option brought about by the Biden administration that is meant to really lessen the burden on borrowers, especially those that are having income difficulties. So SAVE, again, is generally 10% of your discretionary income, However, they have a different formula that's used in defining discretionary income that would be more favorable to borrowers who are trying to pay less. The next two that are available are IBR, 
or income-based repayment. And that's generally 15% of your discretionary income, at least for borrowers after July 1st of 2014. And again, that can never exceed the standard 10-year repayment. And then last but not least, also probably the least popular of the bunch is ICR or income contingent repayments. And this says that your payment will be the lesser of 20% of discretionary income or what you would otherwise pay on a fixed payment over 12 years. All right, so you might have to just rewind for two minutes and go listen to those acronyms again. But if you kept up with me, you'll probably recognize that, all right, if I'm looking for a low monthly payment to fit into my budget, the two obvious ones, the lowest ones there are pay or save both based on 10% of discretionary income. But remember, I said discretionary income is now being defined a bit differently. So under the standard uh, pay-as-you-earn, P-A-Y-E, discretionary income is the difference of your adjusted gross income, or AGI, and 150% of the poverty guideline. Okay, so in other words, if you are at 150% of the poverty guideline or below, you can actually have $0 income-driven repayments under pay. Now, SAVE, this is the new plan that just came out. And for those of you who may have been on repay, which was revised pay as you earn, that has automatically become SAVE. So there's nothing you need to do. You're already now enrolled in the SAVE repayment option. Again, it's 10% of discretionary income. However, now discretionary income is defined as the difference between your adjusted gross income and 225% of the poverty guideline. So naturally, when we raise the poverty guideline up to 225% of that number, that means that it's going to be a lower monthly repayment when we take the save option. All right, so what that means in short most people are going to be thinking save versus pay. And if they're just strictly looking for the lowest monthly repayment, more often than not, save is going to be the answer for the borrower. Okay. <clears throat> some key things to note about here, and these are also some updates or, or differences, I should say, with save and pay worth noting. Most notably is on pay, the government provided an interest subsidy for the first three years of repayment in which if the borrower's repayment did not cover their accruing interest, that interest did not capitalize. All right, so that was a great help where if we were just getting started in repayment and say your monthly repayment was $100 a month, but your interest otherwise was accruing at $200 a month, then that additional $100 of accruing interest, it would not capitalize. Essentially, the government uh, they gave you a subsidy, they would not add that on top of what was being owed of your principal and interest to the student loan. This is huge. Anyone that's ever dealt with credit card debt and said, ah, oh, man, every month I'm paying my minimum and somehow my credit card balance just keeps getting bigger and bigger. That is the power of compound interest. All right. When we're an investor, it's our best friend. But when we're a borrower, that can be our worst enemy. So the U.S. government was kind enough under the, the PAYE to say for your first three years of repayments, we are going to subsidize the interest that's not covered by your payment. Now, SAVE, which again is lowering the monthly repayments for most borrowers, is actually building on that interest subsidy 
and they're saying that the government will stop charging any monthly interest not covered by the borrower's repayment, and that's to go indefinitely, not just the first three years of repayment. All right, so that's another big advantage for SAVE. And then a key thing to note in tax consideration, under both pay as you earn and save, married buyer, bar, excuse me, married borrowers who file their tax returns separately will not have their spouse's income factored into their repayment. All right, so think about it. Let's look at a, a case study. If we had a young medical resident that has perhaps a gigantic student loan balance from undergrad and med school, and they're just making $65,000, $70,000 as a medical resident, but then they're married and their spouse is already well-established in their career, making a lot of money. If they were to file their tax return married filing jointly, it's going to look at both of their incomes and generate a possibly very large uh, income base for payment. Whereas if they said, all right, we'll go married filing separately, now it's just going to look at that borrower's income alone and perhaps keep their monthly repayment much lower than it otherwise would be. So that's a key consideration uh, for married borrowers to think about as they file their tax returns. All right, so everything I've just been discussing, these are all income-driven repayment options. So hence, as the name implies, it's based on your income. All right, that's the driving factor here. So your income must be reported. And now that student loans, again, are just resuming repayment this month, October of 2023, there's a lot of confusion out there of, well, what exactly do I pay? When do I recertify my income? How does this all work? All right. So the earliest that you can be required to recertify your income is March 1st of 2024. All right. Nothing is mandatory before then. That's very important to note. So if your scheduled recertification date falls between right now and March 1st of 2024, it's going to be pushed back exactly one year, All right? So say you would typically recertify income November 1st. Well, now you're going to be forced to recertify income November 1st of 2024, All right? It's pushed back exactly 12 months. Now there's a caveat to that you are allowed to recertify income early if you so choose, all right? That could be beneficial for borrowers who either A, are making less money than they were pre-COVID, all right? So they wanna adjust their income and get a lower payment than they were previously on, or maybe their situation is the same, but their family size has increased, and that's another factor that could create a lower monthly repayment. So that's something a lot of people are going to have to consider. They may just want to continue on a low monthly payment as they were back before 2020, or if their income dropped, like I said, then they could certainly recertify earlier. Uh, and I'm going to put in our show notes um, some links to the income-driven uh, recertification application and also some of the loan calculators, which will be able to help you determine what's your monthly payment going to look like under these various options, all right? And then the last thing I want to note, I know we're covering a lot of ground here, but in regards to the repayment options. So back in March of 2020, when the government brought about these emergency measures, they immediately suspended auto pay. All right. So people weren't just having, you know, payments drafted out of their checking accounts. Uh, that was synced up with when the pause began uh, three and a half years ago. So what that means is that most borrowers now are going to have to re-enroll 
in their auto pay through whoever their servicer is. So you don't want to miss out on that. All right. And then now let's use this for lack of a better segue. Uh, we've gone over some of the different repayment options, but what's dominated so much of the conversation nowadays is student loan forgiveness. All right. And the income-driven repayments, everything we just discussed, they qualify for a number of forgiveness programs. Uh, so you don't feel that you're doing an income-driven that perhaps uh, makes these unavailable. It's actually the exact opposite. There's even more opportunity out there for you. All right, so let's touch on some of the forgiveness options. The most popular that, that a lot of folks consider right now is PSLF which stands for Public Service Loan Forgiveness. What does that mean? Public Service Loan Forgiveness states that if the borrower is employed full-time by a government or not-for-profit organization and makes 120 qualifying income-driven repayments, all right, 120 monthly, that would mean 10 years of qualifying payments, then the balance, the remaining balance on their student loans is forgiven. All right, so I'll say that one more time. If you're working for the government or a not-for-profit on an income-driven repayment plan, like we just had gone over, and you make 10 years of qualified repayments, then whatever's left is going to be forgiven. And another huge thing that a lot of folks get confused on, when you are forgiven under PSLF, the forgiven balance is not considered taxable income. So that's a beautiful program. That's a huge incentive uh, for so many people out there. And then that tax break is pretty awesome too. So borrowers can search if their employer qualifies on federal student aid search engine. I'm going to throw that in the show notes as well, because uh, it's important to recognize you, it's all based on where you're working. So you got to make sure that your employer does qualify. Uh, another little caveat those 120 payments that I mentioned, they do not have to be consecutive, all right? So if we make five years of qualifying payments, change jobs, we want to go work in the private sector, you know, become a contractor, start our own business, whatever the case may be. And then two years thereafter, say, you know what, I want to go back to my old uh, employer, that not-for-profit or back uh, with the government or something like that. Then we can resume and continue working towards our 120. It's not like you have to start over. All right, so again, those qualifying repayment plans are going to be SAVE, which was formerly Repay, uh, Pay, IBR, and ICR. Now, I always tell people it's best, best practice uh, to submit your PSLF form annually. That's the way that you can keep up with your credits, your 120 credits that you're aiming for, and make sure that you kind of have a scorecard of what your progress looks like. Now, it's not mandatory. You could wait all the way to the very end and then submit your application for PSLF. However, you may have to then go back to these prior employers over the past 10 years and work with HR to get the certifying letter from them. It can just be a big headache and you might get blindsided and, oh, find out that you're two years short of forgiveness. Uh, and it's better to know that in advance, obviously. All right, so those total, qual uh, total number of qualifying payments they only update uh, when you certify your employment. So if you're looking at the system, you're confused, you thought you had X credits and you're seeing Y, uh, perhaps that's the issue is that you have yet to certify that employment. All right, now the, one of the coolest things of all this in regards to PSLF is the past three and a half years, 
where technically you had $0 repayments, those will all count as income-driven repayment credits towards PSLF and TEPSLF, which is the Temporary Expanded Public Service Loan Forgiveness. So let's spend a moment right there. I know a lot of people out there are like, what, what is TEPSLF? I've never even heard of that. So the Temporary Expanded version was a program that Congress had passed in 2018, and it was meant to expand PSLF and make forgiveness a little bit easier and more widely available to borrowers out there. All right, so the program temporary, temporarily allows borrowers who are repaying their Fed Direct loans under non-qualifying repayment plans. All right, those would be like graduated repayment, uh, extended repayment. Some of those that normally do not qualify for PSLF, the government essentially added more leeway to it and said, we'll now accept those and add those to the 120 credits. Now, if you don't work at a qualifying place of employment, so you're saying I got a really big student loan balance, but just the nature of my work, I'm not with the government, I'm not with a not-for-profit, so PSLF isn't for me. Don't abandon all hope if you're trying to get forgiveness because each income-driven repayment plan offers their own forgiveness for all borrowers, regardless of employment. All right, and this is now when we go back to pay and save that I had been discussing a moment ago. Here's another really big distinction. Pay states that after 20 years of repayments, any remaining balance will be forgiven, period. Doesn't matter where you're working. Save is somewhat similar in that it says, we'll follow the same 20 year rule. However, the 20 year forgiveness only applies to undergraduate debt. If you have graduate debt from medical school, from law school, then that debt will require 25 years of repayments in order to be forgiven. All right, so now for most, we're talking about probably very large student loan balances uh, that we're going to be carrying for that amount of time, but that may be applicable to a lot of folks out there. Uh, so you just wanna understand the difference because as you're choosing, do I wanna do pay? Do I wanna do save? just recognize that little caveat there on the save option when it pertains to graduate debt. And then last but not least, uh, since the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, these forgiven balances on the 20 or the 25 year repayments, they will be exempt from federal income tax through January 1st of 2026. Okay. However, they can still be subject to state income taxes, that's something you'll want to consult your CPA or tax advisor about. Um, but, and again, that's another one that's certainly going to be politicized and debated again and again, just as these student loan repayments were over the past few years. So let's just kind of take all that information we absorbed and now bring it to the macro. And, and with this $1.6 trillion of debt owed to the U.S. government, and then a U.S. government that in turn owes about $32 trillion of national debt. Let's talk a little bit about the politics. And it's important to keep your finger on the pulse here uh, because this is going to dictate the outcome for many borrowers out there. So it has been crystal clear with the Biden-Harris administration that they have been championing student, student loan debt relief since they began campaigning. Now, the Supreme Court very recently just struck down Biden's plan to forgive some or all 
of federal student loan debt for tens of millions of borrowers uh, just earlier this summer. And I'll quote Chief Justice John Roberts. He said that the authority to modify statutes and regulations allows the Secretary of Education to make modest adjustments and additions to existing provisions, not to transform them. And that was ultimately the decision to turn down Biden's attempt at giving uh, broad student loan forgiveness across the board, which was going to be $10,000 or $20,000 per borrower. Now, Biden has come back and said he's vowing to continuing finding more and more relief options that are out there uh, to what the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, calls a, quote unquote, broken student loan system. Uh, but these forgiveness options and the relief will continue to be politicized as proponents are empathizing with these cash-strapped borrowers uh, that are having kind of a delayed start to their adulthood as they're trying to navigate student loans rather than maybe get married and put kids through daycare or buy a house and do all these other big things. But then there's opponents on the other side that are fearing just further inflation, all right, by having the government take on the debt and leave more money in the economy, uh, ballooning national debt, which has, you know, much bigger impacts across the board. And then ultimately, these blank government checks that are being uh, already used to allow pricey college tuitions to continue to climb. And then finally, there's borrowers that have already paid their full share. And they're saying, hey, what about me? You know, I did it all the right way. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're going to watch debt go up and taxes go up while, uh, you know, new graduates maybe get some sort of forgiveness. So it's a very tense subject, needless to say, but you want to stay in the know. You want to understand what are your particular options in your financial plan. And I hope this helped. And I hope understanding these income-driven repayments can really be a saving grace for a lot of borrowers out there. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. Again, please leave us a review, uh, you know, share on social media, ask questions, whatever we can talk about and help educate about. That's what we're here for. Until next time, be well and continue to pursue wealth in its original meaning, a state of well-being. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.